Join brilliant minds as they come together to tackle the biggest healthcare problems facing the globe. The content in this series is taken from the 2018 conference in London. Coming up is Francis Day Sturck on how the NHS can repay its great debt to the Commonwealth. Enjoy. Well, I, I'm Francis Day Sturck, a Fed trustee, and I'm delighted to be here at the conference today. I think the reason I was invited to speak is because of my heritage, my profession, and my experience. And because of my critique of Ben's blog, if you've read Ben's blog, and my opinions that I've expressed on push-pull factors and on the learn, earn and return scheme. So that will teach me. This is a very um, informal session. It's about my personal perspective, my journey, and my opinions on certain things. So why back to the future? Well, as the world, including the UK, faces a deficit of medical midwifery and nursing personnel, competition for these vital human resources increases, and with it, the challenge to find solutions. But we know the situation is not new. Now, the year that the NHS was founded, and it's 70 this year, also marks the passing of the 1948 Nationality Act. And it was designed to encourage colonial residents to come to Britain to help with post-war reconstruction. And since then, many health workers have come from the Commonwealth and they've come to call the UK home. They've contributed immeasurably to the health and well-being of this country. And I think the debt owed by the NHS to the Commonwealth cannot be ignored. So as we pick up the pieces after the Windrush scandal, let's, let's not make the same mistakes as we look for solutions. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my story. And maybe you can tell from my accent, I don't, I'm not British. But it was with great pride that all my family, and I mean all my family, waved me off at the airport. It was a big event in those days. Everybody came to say goodbye. Well, I was the first sibling and the second in the family to venture overseas to study. My uncle, he came to England in the Windrush era he lasted six months, and I won't tell you what he said. My aunt got a scholarship to the United States. She went away to study, become a teacher. She returned for one year, then she went back. She migrated, married, and stayed there. So I was 18 years old, and like many of my friends, left our island home of Jamaica to study. Some went to Canada, USA, Spain, or Mexico, but others like me headed to the UK, and our intention was to study, to learn, and to return. It was meant to be no more than four or five years. I wanted to study general nursing, pediatrics, and midwifery. I was both excited and emotional at the exodus. And as I gazed out the window of the aircraft at the beautiful Caribbean Sea, my heart was really heavy. The BOAC flight stopped in Bahamas and Bermuda before arriving in London on a cloudy, wintry December day. It was gray. It was foggy and it was cold, something I had not experienced before. My coat, brought from Canada by my friend who'd come home for the holidays, did its best, but the wind at Paddington Station seeped into my bones as I waited for a train to take me south. Now, I enjoyed the study and the camaraderie of the nursing home, but I longed for home. There were many times that I wanted to give up and to go home but the overriding drive was not to let my family down. 
and so I persevered. I found resilience to deal with the climate, the culture, and the culinary differences. And I qualified as an S. And then I pursued midwifery education. And the journey took me on a path which included being community midwife, midwifery manager, working in midwifery education, to becoming a director at the Royal College of Midwives, and latterly, president of the International Confederation of Midwives. So what about solutions? Well, given my own journey, when I read that the Department of Health and Social Care had embarked on a scheme to encourage the exchange of nurses from the UK, my home, and Jamaica, my country of heritage, well, of course, I was intrigued, to say the least. The new Earn, Learn and Return scheme, a partnership with Jamaica, facilitated by Health Education England, is encouraging Jamaican nurses to work in the NHS for three years to gain specialist skills and experience in areas such as emergency care and intensive care to take back to the Jamaican health system. Jamaican nurses are expected to return with share these acquired skills, knowledge and experience. And NHS staff will also have an opportunity to travel to Jamaica to share their expertise with the Jamaican Health Service and help them to improve themselves. Well, on face value, this is a very valuable initiative. However, it's scant on details and there are more questions than answers. And it leads me to think about what push factors really mean. Now, I believe that the majority of the diaspora, like myself, had every intention of returning to work in and build the health system of our country of origin. However, life intervenes and at times conspires to thwart the very best of intentions. Somewhere in the third year of my training, I married secretly. I did not return as planned. I was not pushed, but rather I was pulled by personal circumstances. So whilst we say that Western countries are often accused of poaching health professions with the pull factors, you know, the prospect of better pay, working conditions, education and career prospects, many health professionals' decisions are actually based on push factors and migrate out of the profession or out of the country due to limited career opportunities, poor working environments, poor pay, lack of resources, commodities, and, community, and continuing professional development opportunities. You know, this is really all about leadership. The Learn, Earn, and Return scheme is welcomed by some and not others. We know that the Minister of Health of Jamaica requested UK assistance in tackling the shortage of critical care nurses on the island and that the Minister of State for Health in the UK made it clear he was delighted in partnering with Jamaica in this scheme. But there are dissenting voices, and amongst those in Jamaica is the Association of Nurses of Jamaica. And I'm going to quote, because this is what it says in the newspaper. And they've said that the latest British recruitment drive is horrible. It's horrible news for the Jamaican health sector. Whilst we recognize the opportunities to specialize are attractive, the recognition of existing technical expertise appears to be overlooked. This is often the case. James Moss Solomon, he's the chairman of the University Hospital of the West Indies in Kingston, he highlighted the technical expertise of nurses and he said, and I quote, we do very good training of specialist nurses here at a fraction of the cost in the United States, in Canada or the UK. So it's an economic issue. There's a great saving for foreign countries. 
in just poaching instead of training. So I ask the question, where is the reciprocity? Yet I think and it seems that both governments are abiding by bilateral agreements and cooperation with advanced training consistent with the WHO Global Code. So why were there, why are there dissenting voices? And a question that arises is what engagement, if any, was there with the respective professional organizations? Would the leadership of the NAJ have responded so negatively if they had been included? I think not. As we recognize the reality that the global way we live, work, and play is only going to increase, we must also acknowledge the associated mobility and migration of health workers, either by intent or outcome. But considering my decades-old experience, I think there are some lessons to be drawn from the reflections of those who came before. The NHS and its values of equity and fairness can rightly be seen as a good healthcare model of choice for countries around the world. But as we engage internationally, the NHS needs to do more to recognize the impact recruiting health workers from overseas has on those countries if we do not hold true to these values. We know it's crucial that low and middle income countries have the resources and the capacity to build their health workers because of all the shortages across the world, the greatest shortages as identified by the WHO are in low and middle income countries. Low and middle income countries share common themes, economic security and opportunities. Identify and address the push factors if they are to retain their health skill, their skilled health workforce. Now, when I'm thinking about push-pull factors, there's an image that's conjured up in my head, and it's of that fictional animal, the push-me-pull-me um, creature in the Dr. Doolittle. You know, there's indecision. They look this way, they look that way, and sometimes, of course, there's no movement. Deciding to migrate is not an easy decision. People really think hard about it. When I think about my six colleagues, six nurses who trained in England, and they went back home, there isn't a single one who stayed in the health service. They all migrated either out of the profession entirely to the commercial sector or to North America. I, might, I was one of those. Where health professionals enjoy security in their living and working environments, they don't want to leave. Where they can feed their children, send their children to school, they don't want to leave. So we can't always blame Western countries for pulling health workers away. Countries have to take domestic action and address the deficiencies that are making their health workers leave. So there are degrees of difference between high, middle and low income countries. The latest figures for shortages of nurses and midwives, according to vacancies advertised in this country is 133,661. The Royal College of Nursing estimates there's a shortage of 40,000 nurses in England. And recently, the Royal College of Midwives reported that for every 30 midwives educated here, 29 leave. We've got a plus one. But we are in a different position to a country which has very, very minimal resources. And we have to bear that in mind and be ethical about how we recruit. I want to end by saying you know, this um, Learn, Earn and Return scheme really bothered me because three years of nurses out of the country, 
is almost the same as training for three years to become a qualified nurse. Is another another way we could um, cut the program time down, less time overseas, more time at home? Was there not a possibility to link with the university in country and have some sister universities shared learning? What about technology? We are so advanced in terms of um, social media, the internet. It's not beyond us to come up with a scheme that would do that. But I was talking to somebody today and I'm a bit relieved because he told me that it's not three years at all, that it's six months. So it does teach you, you must not believe everything you read in the press or on the internet. We have so much in front of us. And I think that yes, yes, domestic action is crucial, but at that, we can lead the way. That's gonna be 30 years next year. And I think that this is a role for them to take forward how we partner with people, how we use technology to mitigate the loss of staff in countries, but also the carbon footprint. So domestic action is crucial, but we're all in this together. So I urge you, all of us here today, to combine all our efforts and energies to make sure that the one billion people across the globe who have no access to healthcare is able to achieve universal health coverage. Thank you. This is the THET podcast on the Medics Academy Network. If you'd like to learn more about THET, you can find our website at thet.org.